Welcome to the Sunday Preaching Podcast of The Point Church, located in Perdido Key, Florida. We believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. It has been an incredible day of worship, has it not, already? We have sung, sang, we've worshiped through song. We have joined a wonderful servant of the Lord into membership of our church. We've read scripture. I don't know that there's anything else I need to do. But it's been a wonderful day so far. Just to echo a couple of things that Pastor Joe um, clarified and prayed on. Uh, the first thing is just continue to pray for the nation of Israel. Um, you know, it's not a political thing. We just need to pray for the nation of Israel. Uh, we may not know all the details. Uh, as I was getting up on the platform last service, I received a notification on my phone, as many of you probably did as well, uh, just the current situation there. And just to continue to pray uh, for all parties involved, because many of them need Jesus. And But we continue to pray for the nation of Israel. Uh, also, just to echo even what he was saying about the women's conference um, this week, weekend, what happened Saturday night and yesterday morning into early afternoon. Uh, but just one point of reference, just to segue into that, before the first service started, someone came up to me and said, well, you're, you're wearing a jacket, I suppose you're preaching. I said, you guess right. They said, are you, are you trying to impress me? I said, no. They said, well, why, why are you wearing a jacket? I said, because my wife told me to. <laughs> so... I slept well last night, just saying, so um, just knowing that I, I, I did that, but, uh, but no, she did a great job. I've heard from many of you have come up to me and said that she did a wonderful job. Uh, before you know it, yeah, please, yeah, sure. Uh, I told her last night, I said, before you know it, um, they're going to be uh, referencing me, saying, oh, there's, there's Pastor Brooks' husband over there. I'm saying, okay, fantastic. <laughs> Uh, but no, I know it was a great weekend. Also, I have to point out this, just segueing into a life of joy. Uh, my boys, we got up here on Friday night. Some of you may, are, may be aware of this already, but we got up here on Friday uh, a little bit early. We were going to blow up the parking lot together, you know, all the acorns in the parking lot and all the leaves are starting to fall. A few of them, not a lot of them are falling, but a few of them. We wanted to kind of make it, you know, a little, a little bit presentable for the ladies coming here. And so all the things. And so we did that. And then we tried to help with some other things. And, and anyway, we were kind of done and the ladies are about to get started. And so my boys, they went up to the mint table right out here. If you don't know, we have mints. We have mints. That's We're known for at least one thing here at the Point Church. We have a big bowl of mints. And all of you reap those benefits, I'm sure. And so um, they, they asked me, hey, Daddy, can I, can I have a mint? I'm like, sure. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Some of you already know where this is going. Some of you moms out there. So, so anyway, uh, you know, we're, we're waiting on the ladies, and some of them are already in the room. And Brooke is in here. She had, like, mic check. You know, she's, she's ready to go. She's been, been preparing for weeks, early mornings, late nights, all the things. And then I come around the corner, and then I see my youngest, Atlas. He's five. Most of you know him. You know him for sure. But he's coming down the hallway, and he's kind of red. And I'm like, He's choking on that peppermint, for sure. And so I calmly walked down, you know, because I think it just happened. And, you know, I, he got to me over here in front of the bathrooms. I, you know, I assessed the situation, trying not to panic. If you know me, I don't do blood. I don't do things. I don't do that. So, But I'm, not, I'm like, okay, Brooke's going to find out, and I'm going to be in deep trouble, especially if she's about to speak. 
And if you know anything about speaking, like you're focused, like you're ready to go. And uh, so I assess the situation. I look at him like, yep, he's choking. And so I come around and I do the Heimlich a couple times and then bleh, it comes out and I'm kind of like, I just saved his life. <laughs> and then there's some ladies out there in the hallway out there and they're kind of looking to kind of see what ha- has, is happening, what's going to happen. And of course, Atlas starts whimpering. He was really scared, you know. Of course, that's, that's a scary thing to choke. Even as an adult, that's a really scary situation, especially when you're five and you have everyone looking at you and uh, everyone's trying to help. And I'm like, no, I, I, don't, I don't need help. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And, and if, it lo- if it seemed like I was a bit, frazzled is because I was. And, and I was going to the bathroom to get them all wiped off, you know, and I said, before you go in there, don't say anything to Brooke at all. Don't say, don't tell her anything. And so anyway, they had a great night. But then when she got home, I promise there's a segue here. I promise there is. Um, she got home and, and I thought she's going to, she's going to see me and she's going to immediately say, did you give him a peppermint? And she came up and we were outside. We weren't talking about that. We were on our front, you know, part of our house with all the fall decor. It looks like our house threw up fall, just all right there, you know. And we're standing there. I'm kind of waiting on her in the light, just kind of like, you know, the moths are going everywhere. And I'm like, hey, how'd it go? You know, and she said it went great. I'm like, okay, all right. She doesn't know. Okay, here, I just want to go ahead and tell you something before anybody else tells you this, okay? And she just immediately, what? <laughs> like, everything's, everything's good. Everybody's okay. I said, but, but I gave Atlas a peppermint. You gave him a what? A peppermint? I'm like, yes, I gave him a peppermint. And he choked. That's the bad news. I said, the great news is that I saved his life. <laughs> and she said, you gave him a peppermint? He was, gonna, he was going to choke on that. I said, well, I know that now. <laughs> but did you hear that I saved his life at all? I mean, I saved him. takeaways, don't give a five-year-old a peppermint and let him run. Like, I knew that, and I definitely know that now. So, but anyway, I, I, I am called to have a life of joy, as the book of Philippians said, and I communicate that. Hey, he choked. We saved his life. We can look at the positive. We live a life of joy, no matter the circumstances. It's all good, babe. So, anyway, a life of joy, the book of Philippians. So, no matter if someone's choking, I say their life, I did have joy in the moment. So, there's the good segue there, right? But all in all, I, I think the ladies had a great time. And aside from even my wife uh, doing a great job, the team, the entire team that prepared for that. Uh, Kim and Patty, I know there were several others in here uh, that I may or not, may not see in here, uh, but y'all did a phenomenal job praying for that and getting ready for that, so thank you very, very much. Uh, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, I want you to turn to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians. We are continuing this nine-week series in the book of Philippians. The entire sermon series is entitled, A Life of Joy, A Life of Joy. If you know, know this, Philippians is in the New Testament. It's nestled in between the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. Again, I said this last week. If you have to look at the table of contents, that is just fine. Especially if you don't want to be the last one to get to that book. It's always very helpful to look at that. I still refer to it from time to time. Anyway, Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the what, church? The gospel, that, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. You can see the transition between verse 14 and verse 15. His tone, not an angry tone, but just kind of drawing in tone. It kind of pivots a little bit. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will what, church? Rejoice. Again, most of you are familiar with the book of Philippians. Uh, It's a very well-known book. Many people have read it. It's one of the first books that you probably read when you became a believer, uh, mainly because it's pretty short and you can read it in one sitting. Uh, The book of Philippians is really known for one common theme. What is that, church? Uh, Joy. We're being interactive today, aren't we? Uh, But yeah, the word joy, it's known for joy. And its reason is because it's used 16 times, or the variation of the word of joy, whether it be rejoice or joy, 16 times in just 104 verses. So it's no secret what Paul wanted to communicate to the Philippians. He wanted to communicate that you are called to have joy no matter your circumstances. Last week, we looked at the uh, joyful affection that we are to have affection for our relationships with God and with people, and we should have an affection for the mission that God has called us to, that we should have an affection for all of those things, and in that, we'll have a life filled with joy. Again, he wanted to communicate that they are, no matter their circumstances, they are called to serve the Lord, no matter their obstacles that are in their way. They are called to serve the Lord. And they were not only to be encouraged by Paul in this letter, but he wanted to make sure that he communicated that you serve and obey God. And today's sermon title is just that. We are called to have a joyful obedience. A joyful obedience. We as believers in Christ, we live a life that is obedient. Uh, By our obedience, we bear fruit in our lives. We repent and have faith and trust in Christ's salvation. But then uh, after that, we just automatically have an inclination to obey the things of God. It's not a a list of rules that we follow. Uh, Sometimes I wish it was just a list of things that we could check off, but it's not that. Uh, We get fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It's not just eternal life for later. It's eternal life for now. We get all of this and heaven too that we are called to have a joyful obedience to Christ. And to have biblical joy, we must understand, as the Philippians understood, which brings me to my first out of three points, is that obedience is always required. Obedience is always required. Now, this first point is kind of an overview of the entire section of verses 12 through 18, but obedience is required. Required. What I am not saying here is that we are called to obey things that go against the Word of God. That's not what I'm saying. We have a devotion to God's call in our life and the Word of God. We obey at all times His call and the Word of God. Everything else is secondary, right? So if it goes against those things, 
We may not need to obey those things. We obey the word of God and the call he's placed on our life. Am I, am I clear as mud there? We obey the Lord. And as far as we know, the Philippians were obeying the word of God. You even see in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, You have always obeyed. You have always obeyed. They were loving one another as much as we can tell, which communicates their obedience, right? So if we love people, it shows that we're obedient to Christ's command to love others, right? We love God and then we love others. They were preaching Jesus Christ as Lord, which communicates their obedience. We are obedient when we preach the truth, right? We are disobedient when we preach what is false. They were partnering with Paul in the ministry, both spiritually and financially, which communicates their obedience and having an affection for the mission that they are called to. And I could go on and on about the potential things that communicate their obedience. Now, of course, they were not perfect at all. And Paul addresses some of their imperfections here in a way. Because you know that they weren't perfect because as always, when you put two sinful people under the same roof, you're going to have problems, right? That includes the church. And all of you who have ever been to church for more than two weeks know that. And most of you who are married, you know that you put two sinful people under the same roof, you are going to have some sort of issue, right? Some of you don't want to admit that. Like, no, everything's good. We're, we're, we're great. Brooke and I, we learned that real quick. You know, anytime you uh, are getting prepared to be married, you think, man, I, this is going to be a piece of cake. I mean, we're, gonna, we're, we're believers, we're Christians, we follow Jesus. We're, we're going to pray together. We're going to read the scriptures. I mean, we're going to go to church. We're gonna, I mean, we're going to get our clothes ready before church even. And we're not going to argue on the way to church at all whatsoever. And we're not going to argue about what to eat afterwards at all. Never. We're never going to do that. Now I'm preaching here, okay? We're never going to do that. I, you know, I'll never forget one of our, our first kind of, um, let's just call it a, a, a heated spiritual conversation, let's call it that, uh, was, 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 was over toothpaste. You know, she, I, I'm like a, a, in a top squeezer downer, kind of like systematically of like, we're going to get all that toothpaste. All right, when we first got married, it was $1.88. Now it's like $100.88, you know? <laughs> we're going to get all the toothpaste we can out of there. And she's kind of like a, just a squeezer anywhere. You know, let's just get it out of there. I'm like, oh, man, this is, those of you who do that are insane. Not saying that she, she's not. She's not. <laughs> See what I did there? Recovery. Um, but everyone else is, right? Uh, and, and, and just thinking, man, why, why are we getting in a heated spiritual conversation about toothpaste or whether or not the pasta should be mixed this way or the sauce this way or whatever it is? What, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? Uh, the resolve of that is that we just get two tubes of toothpaste. Problem solved, right? And so that's just the way that it goes. But you know that you put two sinful people under the same roof. You're going to have different opinions, different thoughts, different ways of doing things. And most of us think that our way is the right way. It may not always be true, maybe to you and to me that it is, but by and large, it's not. But you get the message there. And I pointed out last week the first believers in the city of Philippi. You remember them? Uh, the woman named Lydia? Tell me. Slave girl, and then what? A Gentile jailer. And I mentioned last week it was a very common prayer for Jewish men to pray when they first woke up. First they would, they would quote the, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4. Uh, but they would quote a, a, a similar prayer or a different prayer every single day. It was very similar every single day. Recovery there as well. Sorry. Uh, and 
Paul would have known and been very familiar with this prayer, and he himself probably would have prayed this prayer as well. After the Shema, they would have said something like this, God, thank you for not making me a woman. Thank you for not making me a slave girl. And thank you for not making me a Gentile. And the first three people in Paul's ministry, and again, Paul knew this, was a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. God will build his church however how he wants to, right? Because of Paul's obedience to go to Philippi, because he knew that no believers were there. He knew that the gospel needed to be preached in this place. And he went there and preached it. And those three people were the very first people to come to know Christ. God is a God who breaks barriers. And God will lift up people in the church who are the least likely to do his work. And I'm a, I'm a testament to that. And I think many of you would probably say the same, a similar thing about yourself. I'm the least likely he would save. Of why me? Some of you have had that type of testimony. Of God, why would you save a sinner like me? Out of all the things I've done in my past, why me? That God will build his church. And many of you, you make a difference. Those of you who have a joyful obedience, you obey the call to serve in the local church. And you are here because of your joyful obedience to worship together, worship with believers. And we are called to do that. We are called to sing together. We are called to pray with one another. We are called to come together to hear the word of God proclaimed in this place. And we know that these three individuals and the others that came to know Christ as well in Acts chapter 16, you can read about it there. We know that when they came to know Christ, they immediately got to work. You remember when you came to know Christ, you, you may have not have known what you were supposed to do or what it is you were going to do or, or what the calling of your life was going to be. But you knew as soon as you became a Christ follower, you knew you just had some sort of inclination to get to work. You just wanted to do something, whether that was to share with someone that your experience of what had happened to you, how you'd been transformed, or that you knew you were supposed to serve in the local church, or maybe just to take the buggy back to the right part of the parking lot. Whatever it was, you wanted to do the right thing. You wanted to get to work. And we know that these people got to work. When Lydia came to know Christ, her family followed. She didn't just stay stagnant and silent. She communicated to her family their need for Christ. When the slave girl came to know Christ, it upset her owners. So she undoubtedly told her owners what had happened to her. She was a missionary in a sense. But when the Gentile jailer came to know Christ, he immediately went home and his family came to know Christ. He got to work. We know that it was making a citywide impact on this, on this city of Philippi because Paul would not have written a letter to a city where no believers existed. Who would he have addressed it to? Right? So he knew that this church grew. And you see this in verses 12 through 18, that others began preaching the gospel and proclaiming Christ outside of the people that we see in Acts chapter 16 when he was actually in the city of Philippi. They were making a huge impact. And let me just tell you this before I go any further. Some of you may be struggling with a call of God on your life and you're avoiding the joyful obedience. It might be a facade of joyful disobedience, but you're not obeying. That may, be, that may not be anybody, but I just want to encourage you, if you are being disobedient in a call from God in any way, no matter what it is, we call you today to repent and to have a joyful obedience to that call. 
I, I've been in ministry for, for some time, and I've, I don't know how many stories or people I know that have been called into gospel ministry, whether that be in local church ministry or on the mission field, no matter what it is, and they avoid answering the call to that, to that call is because they're afraid of what their parents might think. They're afraid of what their friends might think. They might be afraid of, of really how does this affect me? I'm not so sure I actually want to sacrifice my life in that way. And really what happens almost 100% of the time, almost 100% of the time, is that they avoid the calling to ministry and almost every time they have doubt of their salvation later. Almost every single time. And they start asking even deeper questions and adding to the conversation between they and God of saying, you know, do I really trust God? Does God really exist? Am I really a Christian? And there's some people who avoid a call of going to another job across the country because you might have to sacrifice being with your family. Might have to go to another job because there's less pay. You might have been disobedient to the call of sharing the gospel with your neighbor that lives across the street or your coworker. We call you today to obey the calling that God has placed in your life and to do that with great, abundant joy. Now, when someone repents and has faith in Christ, salvation, again, the obedience follows. We have a duty to the master. We have a duty to the, to the commander-in-chief, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, the people here in Philippi, they understood the calling to make disciples. There's, there's great debate on whether or not the Philipp book of Philippians was written before the Gospel of Matthew. Some believe Matthew was written first. Some believe uh, Philippians was written first. No matter where you go, you're going to see maybe a, a difference of opinions. Regardless, uh, Paul would have communicated to these individuals that they have been given a great commandment, the great commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the what? Father, Son, and... Holy Spirit. And Jesus said in verses before that, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. And so we are given essentially a military command to fall in line there and to make disciples. And we say, sir, yes, sir. When we as an individual or as a church make disciples, we are living in obedience to Christ's command. We tell our boys all the time, Really, almost daily. Obedience is required, even if it's something you don't want to do. Obedience is required, even if it's not something you want to do. Again, I just mentioned just a moment ago, some of you may be battling with some sort of calling on your life, and you've been avoiding that maybe just for a few days. Maybe it's been years Maybe it's being disobedient to ask someone for their forgiveness. You may need reconciliation with that person. It might be in this room. I, I, I don't know. It may be with your spouse. Even if you think your spouse has wronged you and wronged you and wronged you and wronged you. We are called to live a life of joyful obedience and to be reconciled with people in Christ's name. So don't avoid that calling anymore, church. Don't do it. Your church will benefit from your obedience, our joyful obedience. That's, I'm included in that. I'm included in that. And we must know that obedience is always required, even when it's something we do not want to do. 
Sometimes being obedient to the Lord can be extremely difficult, can it not? It's just hard. Again, we don't want to do it, and sometimes we go kicking and screaming, and we just don't want to do it. There's no way I don't want to do it. No, don't call me. Call someone else to do this. No, especially when you feel like everything in the world is going against you, right? Sometimes when we're obedient, we think, man, it should be a lot easier than this. Uh, I, I I remember when we lived in another city. I'm not even going to mention it in another ministry context. And it was just turmoil day after day after day after day of difficulty. And, and I remember going home and asking Brooke, Brooke, are we sure we made the right decision? Are we sure about this? Uh, this, this the conflict, not just with me, just overall, maybe even in the community. It was just difficult. Obedience doesn't mean a life of ease. Obedience is just us being conformed more to the image of Christ. And sometimes that's it. But even in the difficult times, your obedience is producing something. It's producing something in you and for others. Your obedience is working in someone else's life, believe it or not. So if you're wondering, well, if they're, they're not going to listen to me anymore. I've shared the gospel with them a million times. It's not going anywhere in their lives. I keep praying for someone day after day after day. It's not making any difference. Am I doing anything in my obedience? Christian, do not stop. Continue with joyful obedience to that call to pray for those people, to share the gospel with those people, just to simply love those people, to encourage those people, just so you can be like Jesus. And church, you may not receive a reward here on this earth for your obedience. However, your reward is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Your obedience is a living and walking testimony for the sake of Christ But the most important thing your obedience does is spread the gospel. Because obedience advances the gospel. Obedience advances the gospel. You see there in the second point, obedience advances the gospel. Now you can probably see this entire section is about advancing the gospel. In your Bible, you probably have that subheading right there on the right column, right there in the middle above verse 12, advancing the gospel or to advance the gospel. This is essentially what this entire section is about, advancing the gospel. We must advance the gospel. While Paul was writing his letter to the, to the Philippians, he was, of course, I've said this many times, imprisoned in Rome. Now, he had not broken any laws, no, certainly no civil laws or legal or moral laws. It's just that the gospel is offensive. If you remember, Jesus said, they're going to persecute me, they're going to persecute you. So we should not be surprised when people slander believers for preaching the gospel because the gospel is offensive. I've been all around the world in preaching Christ and the cross and him dying on the cross and resurrecting. That is an offensive message. It's an offensive message when we call people to repent of their sinfulness and to rely on someone else other than themselves. We live in a culture where we say, believe in yourself, uh, you know, elevate yourself. But Christianity says, believe in Christ and rely solely on him. And that's offensive for many people in most of the world. The gospel had become incredibly disruptive as well to the motives of the Roman Empire and also to the believing Jews. You see, there in the city of Philippi, I mentioned it last week, where your devotion to the Roman Empire and Caesar was of the utmost importance. 
And for Jesus, when he said in the Great Commission, he says, all authority has been given to me. Again, that wasn't just saying, hey, I really want you to follow me in making disciples. No, Jesus is saying, listen, I am greater than any kingdom that has ever existed, is existing, or will exist. You follow my orders and my orders alone. And that's it. Paul knew this. He said, I am loyal to Jesus Christ. That's who I'm loyal to. That's why he's saying our citizenship is in heaven later on in Philippians. We are a royal priesthood, not in this world, you see in 1 Peter, but we are a royal priesthood with God forever. That's where our citizenship is, church. And I've heard people discuss the Roman Empire lately. That's a, that's a, that's a thing today. And I've also heard people say, well, compared to the Roman Empire, the United States is the greatest empire that has ever existed. And tangibly, that might be true. Monetarily, that might be true. Militarily, that might be true. But compared to the kingdom of God that he is building now and advancing, it doesn't even compare, church. It doesn't even compare. These empires that are here on the, on the world, it's so small. God has to get a microscope to look at it. The scriptures say that the earth is his footstool. And to think that he called you out individually to advance the gospel for that kingdom. Now that is the kingdom that I want to work for. Is it not you, church? Now when he was arrested, he wasn't put in some deep, dark dungeon, not this time anyway. Instead, he would have been chained to an to a imperial guard member with an 18-inch long chain. He would have been buckled, and it buckled on his hand as well most of the time. Sometimes he would have just been holding it, but they would have been attached together. He had zero privacy, none whatsoever, for a little over two years in this imprisonment. I could hear all my introverts in the room screaming on the inside. Zero privacy? Like, I'd be begging for solitary confinement. No, zero privacy? Zero privacy. If he was not attached to a, a guard member, he was attached to some sort of, of wall, a, a little link there. And I'm not going to get into great detail, but it was a grueling imprisonment because where he ate is also where he did other things. Not very sanitary whatsoever. So it was very grueling. He never thought, though, that his suffering was worthless. He never even thought that his suffering was for himself. But his suffering was for the sake of the gospel. Paul thought and believed that it, it all was worth it. And he preached that it was worth it. And, and it was. Look there in verse 12. I want you to look. I, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to what? Advance thee. The gospel, not his message, not advance my teachings, but the gospel. This phrase, that first phrase there, I want you to know, was a very common expression in letters during this time period. It was especially used when you were trying to communicate something in great detail or of something in importance. It's, in context, it's telling something because, telling someone something because you have something confidential or a secret to tell them. It's almost telling them, hey, hey, come, come here. I, 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 need to, I need to tell you something. Come here, come here, come here. You don't want anybody else to hear for a moment. I'm just telling you, hey, I want you to know something. I had to do that just yesterday. We were driving down the road, and, and I just had kind of one of those parent moments. And I, I, I realized I needed to apologize to one of my kids. And we pulled over right here on Gulf Beach Highway in front of the, the, the Greek 
food truck over here, right? On Gulf Beach Highway. Most of y'all know where that's at, right? I don't know how many times I've been there and thinking I'm going to get some food and they only take cash. Uh, but I pulled right there and I had, to, I had to get Scout out of the car and said, hey, bud, I want you to know something. I, I, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? But, but it's that type of phrase of someone that he deeply cares for. He wanted to get his point across to these individuals in this entire church, this entire city of believers. Call it a family meeting, if you will. You know that he was communicating this to people he loved because right after that phrase, I want you to know, comma, then it says brothers. Some of your translations, the CSB will say brothers and sisters, comma, is the word Adelphoi. It's not just saying brothers, but it's saying, hey, family members of, a, of an entire unit, siblings of a family unit is what's being communicating there. So if you are a family member, we love you. That's why we're the family of God. When we say brothers and sisters in Christ, we are a family. And in many ways, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are closer to each other than our blood relatives that are, who are not in Christ. There have been times when, when Brooke and I have been in certain contexts of ministry. We, we've lived in, away from family members uh, more in our marriage than we have with. And there's been times when we have to, had to be completely dependent on the local church for help with childcare or just information altogether or just really for someone to give us a hug and encourage us and pray for us. Uh, some people we've gone to uh, Thanksgiving meals and Christmas dinners uh, with these individuals and they have felt close, closer than blood relatives. That's not saying that we don't love our blood relatives or we're not, that we're not close with them, but we should, as believers in Christ, be close to one another. Again, he, he's, he's honing in on this message, saying, hey, listen, I love you, so I want you to know these things. These people were once strangers, but now they're family, and that's exactly what the gospel does. Remember, Lydia, and the slave, and the Gentile, you couldn't have been any more different than them, right? And from each other, completely different worldviews, mindsets, how they thought things through. One was a Gentile, they thought one way, one was a slave, they were corrupt by all being possessed for however many years. And the businesswoman from another city had some sort of knowledge about the Jewish God, but yet God brings them together. That's exactly what the gospel does. But so he wants them to know, he's telling them that some details, not all the fine details of what is actually going on in his life and in his imprisonment. Because there were likely some misunderstandings that were swirling around about Paul. Things that were being said about Paul that weren't entirely true. People may have been saying, well, well yeah, he got arrested because, well, he, he was being a little too bold and a little too rash with people. And now, some of this might be presumptuous, but you see it within the, in the context that he had some of these issues going around and going on in this church. They may have been saying, well, you know, well, I know Paul, so hey, come over to, to, to my church or my group here. Because I, I spoke to him directly when he was here last. You may not want to go over there because, well, they're just not as, a, as good as a speaker as I am, so come listen to me. You see the similar thing there in 1 Corinthians. People elevating themselves and saying, hey, why don't you come over here to me? However, they weren't necessarily doing it sinfully, or Paul doesn't call that out as being sinful. He wanted to make sure that they ignored the outside noise and to pay attention to what mattered. That's the gospel. You see this in the last part of verse 12. It says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the what, church? The gospel, to advance the gospel. I want you to get that. 
Paul lived to advance the gospel. He lived it. He breathed it. Yes, he was in prison, but his life was devoted to the advancement of the gospel and nothing else. You see the word advance. Some of your translations may say progress. It's the same Greek word there. It describes not just moving forward, but moving forward or advancing, having progress with obstacles in the way. Right? If, if you're a soldier and you go to war, you're not just going to walk out in the field and your enemy's going to surrender. You're going to have obstacles in the way. You're going to have to get to work to advance the mission that you've been commanded to do and to fulfill. To most, his imprisonment would have been something that would have hindered him from advancing the gospel. And, and in many ways, we think the same thing. That if we just all get rounded up and arrested, then the gospel's not going to be advanced and God won't make much of his kingdom anymore. That's, that's quite the opposite. Quite the opposite will take place. Though we may see obstacles, church, we must advance. Christians should never back down. Christians should never surrender. Christians should never withdraw. We must advance the gospel of Christ our Lord. In the 17th century, an English pastor was arrested for preaching the gospel. His desire was to preach the gospel that was in the scriptures and not a message that was given to him by the Church of England and commanded to teach this in the community. The Church of England was run by the government and they said, we want you to communicate this and to do these things. And this individual said, no. Well, guess what happened? He got arrested for preaching the gospel. That was only in the scriptures. He served his first sentence for 12 years, 12 years. And after 12 years, they changed some laws. And also they thought, well, you've uh, had some good behavior in here. And so we're going to let you go free. And also because you just won't stop preaching. And so we're kind of annoyed with you. And so go on your way. So when he was released from prison, guess what he did? He preached the gospel that was in the scriptures, the word of God faithfully and boldly and loudly to anyone that would listen to him. Well, they changed some laws again. I'm not sure if it was just because of him. There were some other things that occurred there uh, legally and within the monarchy there. And he was thrown back in the jail for preaching the gospel. They asked him to stop doing it. And he said no again. And he said, I'm going to continue preaching the gospel. He was put into prison. And guess what he did? He continued preaching the gospel. Even there's testimonies of him being out in the courtyard or in the, the prison yard with all the other prisoners, corralling all of them together so that he could preach Jesus Christ and so that they could find salvation in him alone. And there's even testimonies of him going to the prison walls outside because you probably would have had uh, wooden beams or trees as, as, a, as, a, as a gate or a fence. And typically a village would be nearby the prison because everything was close by. And said so he would yell to the villagers, Christ is Lord. And he would corral the, the villagers to come closer to the gate. And he would preach the gospel to prisoners and free men. Every single day that they would allow him. And after a while, they got tired of that because, you know, in a prison, when you're having control of all the people, well, prison guards can't let that happen because they have to have the control, right? So they said, we're going to put him in solitary confinement so he can't preach to anyone. He would have some associations with some people or interactions with people, maybe one or two at a time if they brought him food or medicine or whatever you have it. And he would preach to them as they approached that cell or whatever that it was in solitary confinement. But when he knew that no one could hear him, he didn't stop. He just did it differently. 
when he knew that no one was listening, he would take a pen and paper and he would write and he would write and he would write. No one knew what he was writing. For all they knew, it was just a crazy guy who loved Jesus a lot. That's a great compliment, by the way. Who is this man, you wonder? John Bunyan. He spent his time in solitary confinement writing what many of you know about is Pilgrim's Progress. Now, the Bible is the most popular, sought-out, bought-purchased book in the world, by far. And until the mid-20th century, Pilgrim's Progress was in second place. And this is near and dear to my heart because we would read Pilgrim's Progress every single night to our boys. And we still do. We take breaks every now and again, but we would reach, read it every single night. And Scout came to know Jesus just a couple months ago. And I have no doubt because of Pilgrim's Progress. He went up to his mother one day and said, Mommy, I want to start my journey. And he said, I want to lay. I want to lay my, my burdens at the cross. And I want to start my journey to the celestial city. John Bunyan's obedience advanced the gospel. So if you think your obedience to your calling that God has placed in your life isn't doing anything, church, I want you to let you know it is doing far more than you realize or you can see. Parents to your children, advance the gospel with your children. Advance the gospel to them. It is making a difference. Husbands, wives, even if you're here without your spouse today, advance the gospel with your spouse. It is making a bigger difference than you can ever imagine with them. Do not stop. Obedience advances the gospel. Obedience is doing something. It was doing something in Paul's imprisonment as well. But how did the gospel spread if he was in prison, much like it was like with John Bunyan? How in the world can we spread the gospel? You see this in verse 13. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for who? Christ. Now, the imperial guard, some of your translations may say the praetorian guard, was composed of 10,000 elite soldiers. It's the best of the best of the best. There's my men in black quote there. Sir, these soldiers were strategically placed around the entire city of Rome because they were dressed well and they were to be a, some type of recruiting service to all the city of Rome and to the, to the Roman Empire. They were to set a standard of protection. They were great soldiers who were trained well to fight and to defend themselves and more importantly to them, to the Roman Empire. They were likely very strong and very uh, uh, you know, muscular men who would walk about the city. And they would be difference makers. Where they walked, they made a difference. Have you ever met an individual when they walk in the room, they just kind of make a difference? They don't even have to say anything. These were these type of men. And they were incredibly powerful. They would serve a, a term of 12 years being in the Imperial Guard. And after those 12 years, they would be relieved of their duties and given a lifelong generous pay. And in some situations, they were put in positions to choose the next Caesar or the Emperor of Rome. These individuals were incredibly networked. They knew a lot of well-known and powerful people in the empire. Some would have access to the emperor to give updates on the city. They would give added 
updates about the attitude of the general population to make sure that everything is in order and in place and that the people are doing what they're supposed to do. And maybe, and this is an assumption. So before you come up to me and say, well, that scripture doesn't say that. I know that. This is an assumption. But maybe, just maybe, an imperial guard member approached the emperor and maybe gave an update about a humble man who just would not stop talking about Jesus. It's evident that some of these members of the imperial guard came to know Christ and others. You see this in these verses here. We can't know how many. We don't know the, the exact number. And I don't know that that's important. We just can celebrate that they came to know Christ. But we know that they did. Because Paul was bold and he was a man of conviction. He wasn't going to stop preaching the gospel. He desired the gospel to be preached in the church and outside of the church. And that's why he's writing to Philippians as well. Have joy. We want you to preach the gospel message outside of the wall so it advance the gospel within the city and outside of the city into the world. But also we should have order within the church, but we want you to continue preaching the gospel here. And he didn't want anything to hinder the gospel And what's interesting is that he communicates his circumstances being imprisoned, but that's not hindering the advance of the gospel. It has the opposite effect. And we can ask these questions, will persecution hinder the gospel? No. You see in in many communities in communist China and other kind of nations that have been persecuted, heavy persecution where the, the gospel is advanced at a rapid rate and more believers every single day and the Lord adds to their number day by day as Acts 2 says. In most places when there's not persecution, this is just statistically true, when there's not persecution, typically the numbers go down of Christ followers. So persecution has the opposite effect. More people desire to follow Jesus in persecution. Will legislation hinder the gospel? No. And, and, you, and you know well that governing authorities, when they tell Christians that they cannot do something, we have a joyful, obedient duty to follow the master and to still worship him, right? So legislation won't hinder the gospel, or it shouldn't. So what can hinder the gospel? Let me just say this, ultimately nothing. Let me say that before my next segment. Ultimately nothing can hinder the gospel. But you know what hinders the gospel more than anything else, and this is what Paul's addressing here in verses 15 through 18. Us. The church. Let me be clear, this is not necessarily happening in Philippi. Paul's not calling out men for preaching wrong theology, wrong doctrine, having moral issues. He's not saying that. And and quite the opposite. He's saying, hey, they have right theology. They have good morals. They have the right doctrine. They have all those things. He's calling them out on their false motives to preach the gospel. Their false motives. And Paul is telling them to tread lightly. He said, hey, listen, you're preaching the right things and it's all good and it's grand and you're proclaiming Christ. People are coming to know Jesus, but I want you to tread lightly. Again, right there in verse verse 12, I want you to know. Then you go to verse 15 through 18. I want you to tread lightly. 
to make sure your motives are pure so that the gospel can continue advancing. And the last thing we need as a church is to have a false testimony in our own community. Uh, so many times I have conversations with people in communities. That's not happened since I've been here. But people are well aware of the things that we're against, but not necessarily the things that we're for. Listen, we need to be preaching Jesus on the streets in our communities, our homes, our workplace, and saying that Jesus died on the cross. He resurrected because he, his love for people. And that should be our message. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't talk about the other things, but let's start preaching about what we are for, not just what we are against. Now, listen, I say this respectfully, okay, respectfully. I'm okay with someone getting upset, especially a, a non-believer. If they do get upset because we've said that the gospel is offensive, I don't, my, my goal is not to just make people mad or, or I don't want other pastors just to make people mad, just to make them mad and just to make them mad. But if someone gets upset because our preaching is true and honorable based from the scriptures, that's okay. That's okay. Personally, I can lay my head down at night and sleep just fine if someone chastises me, and I know the other guys would agree, and I've had a conversation with other pastors, if someone chastises us for preaching what is true. And the things that... We think in today's culture of just even 10 years ago, five years ago, we're thinking that there's no way people would think that and just preaching against some of those things or for Jesus and Jesus not being for that. It's just, we're going to preach those things. And hopefully you can read between the lines on that. We as a church, we will preach Jesus as Lord, that we will preach that God is triune, that there's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We will preach that the Bible is 100% true and 100% perfect. And we'll preach that God created everything in six days and rested on the seventh. And we will preach that Jesus lived and that Jesus died and that he resurrected on the third day. And we will preach the coming of Christ Jesus. And we will preach altogether truth. But many times the skeptics from the outside are not what keeps a believer awake at night. Let me say that again. But many times the skeptics from the outside is not what keeps a believer awake at night. Many times it's from within. This is what Paul is saying again here in verses 15 through 18. He says, look at here. This is an overview of 15 through 18. I want you to look at it. Paul said this. He said, some preach. Again, he's not saying all because some of them are doing it out of love. Some preach from envy and rivalry. They might be envious that they want to be more inclined to Paul's teachings than theirs. And so they're shutting Paul down a little bit. Some preach out of selfish ambition. They want their own personal name to be known within the Christian community. Some preach not sincerely. They're just preaching without any love. Some preach thinking to afflict me. Some preach in pretense. He's speaking about those who have come to know Christ after he left the city, and they've begun preaching the gospel throughout the community. Whether that be in a small group context or whether that be in a church setting like this. I was going to quote on the screen. It's fairly long, and many of you may not be able to read it, but I wanted to put the entire thing on there. And if you want that quote and you can't see it fully, I want you to ask for me and I'll, I'll send it to you. But it says this. Paul had more than his share of detractors, most of them from the Jewish and pagan religious establishments. 
The church soon came to have detractors within its own ranks who maligned their leaders more often than those who were the most godly and effective. One of the most discouraging experiences for a servant of God is that being falsely accused by fellow believers, especially co-workers in the church, to be maligned by an unbeliever is expected. To be maligned by another believer is unexpected. The pain runs very deep when one's ministry is slandered, misrepresented, or unjustly criticized. Now, I'm not just speaking about people who are in vocational or pastoral ministry. I'm talking about people who are Christ followers in general as well. If you were here last month, September 3rd, Pastor Nick Shaddy had an ordination service here in this room on September the 3rd that night. And I was asked to share... Uh, just a few things. There's a list of 15, 15 things that I had learned in the gospel ministry as an ordained minister. And one of those things that I shared, I looked straight at Nick and his wife, Pastor Nick and his wife. I said, one thing you need to know that being in the ministry, you will just be misunderstood. If you were here, you, you remember that. As an ordained pastor, you'll be misunderstood. But I want to say this, as a believer, you will be misunderstood. And more often than not, you will not be given an opportunity to explain yourself. That you will just have to simply sit in silence and smile and live, leave it up to the Lord for your vindication. That's hard. These individuals were preaching with false motives and likely slandering Paul again for being imprisoned. And Paul could have, though. He could have, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, he could have written a big, long letter saying, hey, you, hey, you guys, y'all, right? Y'all are preaching from envy and right, and could have listed all the issues. Now, again, he's not saying, hey, they're, they're necessarily being wrong in what they're preaching. Now, being envious and doing all these things are sinful, but we are sinful people, Right? He could have made a big, long list of all the people and called them out and said, hey, these guys do not need to proclaim Christ in a public setting anymore, but it doesn't necessarily meet the disqualifications that we see in Scripture either. He could have done that. And quite honestly, no one would have thought any negative about him at all because it's Paul. But here's what's great. He does not do that. I said this to someone the other day. Again, he could have. And, and we could have. Can you imagine we, we'd open our Scripture and say, yeah, he got them. Man, they deserve that. Man, in Jesus' name, got them. And Paul is being elevated, and it's all great, grand, and glorious. And we think, oh, now the mission can move forward now that these people are out of our way. No, that, Paul doesn't do that. He, doesn't, he, he said, no, Christ is still being proclaimed. And for that, I rejoice. If our focus is Christ, and the third point I want you to get, our obedience should cultivate joy. That Christ is being proclaimed and then that we can have joy, right? We are going to have a joyful obedience to advance the gospel and because we are having an obedience to advance the gospel, we have joy in our life. Most people in today's society probably would have called people out to be vindicated after all, I mean, you even look at Paul. He started the church. He started it. He started the whole thing. Like, he's the one in charge, even though he's not really in charge. It's Christ. He could have, but he doesn't do that. He thought morally high, more highly of Christ than himself. Christ was his joyful fulfillment. And again, they weren't preaching anything wrong. 
And some may have not even known who Paul was, really. They may have heard of him through people, of a person, of a person, a person who met him. They may have read this letter and kind of was aware that he was kind of a big deal, but they didn't have any maybe affection for him because they didn't know him. But ultimately, you see there in verse 18, Christ is proclaimed. Christ was being proclaimed because of obedience, and that cultivates joy. So you see... You see there, there in the very last part of verse 18, you probably have to go to the next section because people typically stop there right in front of verse 19. It says, yes, and in that I will rejoice. I say, listen, my, my, mess, my personal message doesn't matter. Uh, my approach to the matter doesn't really matter. My, my presentation to this doesn't really matter. And ultimately, their presentation ultimately doesn't matter. But what does matter is that Christ is proclaimed. Now listen, no churches, different churches, we may disagree on some issues. Individuals in local churches may disagree on, on certain things, modes of ministry. We can have joy that Christ is proclaimed and that all people, church, this should be an encouraging thing to us. All people will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. All knees will bow and confess Him as Lord. Because we're all sinners in need of a Savior. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross and resurrected three days later. That should give us great hope. That should cultivate great joy in us, should it not? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that you are a sinner and that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. And it, but it's not just a prayer that you recite and say, okay, I've done my duty, and now I can have heaven, I can have Jesus. It's not just that, but it's a full-on devotion to Jesus Christ. Repenting of our sin, turning back on the previous life, being a new creation, being transformed by the renewing of our mind and through His Word. Some today in this room, you, you may have never placed your faith in Christ. And you may have been sitting there today wondering, well, you, no wonder I've not had joy in my life because I don't have Christ. And I need Jesus. I've never experienced the true transformation that only Jesus can give. Every believer, I want you to think back on when you came to know Christ. I, I say this almost every single time. But think back when you came to know Christ of just the joy that you had, even just for a moment of the transformation and the hope that you felt in your life. Now, for many people, some of that feeling and those emotions kind of subsided over time. But you can look back on the time when you came to know Christ, you began that relationship, and you can have great joy that Christ transformed you and that He has stayed with you on your journey. Aren't you thankful for that? Listen, here in just a moment, we're going to have encouragers at every single door here in the back. We're going to have a time of prayer, and we want to have a time of reflection on, on having a joyful obedience and have a time of reflection if you do need to know Christ and have a relationship with Him. But church, we want to be a church that is joyfully obedient. We must know that joy or that obedience is required, and that brings about joy. That obedience brings about the advancement of the gospel, and that brings about joy. And obedience continues to cultivate joy in our personal and individual lives. Would you bow your head and close your